Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the seventh installment in our Christopher Nolan movie review series. Today we are reviewing Inception. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan. It's kind of crazy to think we are already seven movies in. We're getting pretty close to the end. The last movie with The Dark Knight, and then now this week, I would say, are definitely the two movies that, if his name was, wasn't already known, they at least very much solidified his name in pop culture uh, with these two movies. So this is, I would consider to be probably his most popular of his series, especially so far, of the movies that he's produced. Yes, he does have three theatrically released films for us to go, and supposedly Tenet is going to come out in theaters in July. They're sticking to it. Date hasn't changed yet, so hopefully, hopefully. It's like the only theatrical movie that hasn't changed. So as of this recording, now (laughs) when this recording releases in a few weeks, maybe it'll be different. Right. But as of this recording, yeah, we are still going to go see Tenet in theaters this july which i i hope that's the case i don't want it to be pushed back to like next year like the fast and furious 27 was yeah that would be nice if they didn't do that but from what i understand some theaters are going down the route of still allowing people to come in but having them sit you know the the basic six feet apart uh from another person kind of thing with face mask. You must have a face mask. I've heard of some oh. doing that. So wow. maybe they'll do that with this. Maybe they'll uh, still release it. I guess only time will tell until, you know, it actually comes out. That will be interesting, but we will keep you posted, listeners. Yeah. Inception was released two years, like two years almost to the day after The Dark Knight. Uh, it came out July 15, 2010. And The Dark Knight came out July 16th, 2008. Right. So he seems like July is, uh, July, June, July is around the months that he likes to release because I know that within it also coming out in July, about mid-July. The Dark Knight Rises will come out in July as well. Uh, Interstellar kind of bucked the trend with November. Um, That is interesting, but I'd say that makes some sense and Dunkirk was also mid-July as well, and with Tenet July as well. So probably from here on out, I have a feeling we're going to be getting most known movies in July because these movies are crazy earners at the box office. Oh, yeah. I was shocked to see how much Inception alone earned at the box office. Oh, yeah. Uh, with a budget of $160 million, which is still a very large budget, uh, opening weekend, $67.8 million, which is pretty good. But uh, totally domestically, it made $292.6 million. Foreign markets, $541.3 million, with a worldwide total of, by itself, $833.8 million. I would say this has definitely helped in no part by, or it's definitely helped by The Dark Knight as, uh, as well, because as we know, The Dark Knight was a juggernaut in the box office, and I would say because of that, so was Inception. 
And it's crazy because absolutely it is the Dark Knight because on all the TV spots and all the trailers, they said from Christopher Nolan, the director of the Dark Knight. Right. And if you haven't listened to our review of the Dark Knight, make sure to go back and listen to that the week previous and all the other Nolan films as well, because we have reviewed them all up to this point. Yep. And those reviews build off each other. And it is important to note, just to refresh here, The Dark Knight grossed over $1 billion at the worldwide box office. This film, which is a brand new independent property, it's not a franchise, it's a brand new creation, nearly grossed a billion dollars worldwide. Yeah, it's That's very crazy. close, very close to a, a billion, the billion dollar mark, which, like you said, as an independent property, not really attached to anything outside of Christopher Nolan's name. Very impressive. And just remember, Christopher Nolan's first film when he was 28 grossed $48,000. Yes. So he's is, come a long way. <laughs> he's come a crazy long way, considering this is his seventh film and his films have grossed around two and a half billion dollars. So which far. is which, which half of that to do with uh, uh, the Dark Knight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, half of that is just one film alone. Yeah, um, but it is crazy also because his films were always grossing in the one hundreds. Usually, got a little bump there with Batman Begins, and then it dropped yep. down to the one hundreds, and then Dark Knight skyrocketed to one billion. And so from here on out, he's going to be Warner Brothers' cash cow. Oh and yeah, and Warner Brothers will say. Whatever you want to do, no studio interference. We completely trust you. Do whatever you want. Here's all the money you want because you know he's going to reap it back like tenfold. Yeah, and even his box office placement is still pretty respectable, especially for a you know standalone property. It did open at number one. Um, it actually went up against Despicable Me, which has already been the box office for a week at this time, uh, mm. but also opened with The Sorcerer's Apprentice. A Walt Disney mm -hmm. picture, which I believe was a flop, if I'm not mistaken. Not in uh, my book. I liked it at the time. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've only seen pieces of it, but I do remember it not doing so well in the box office. Um, other movies that week, uh, Toy Story 3, which had been in for, what's that, five weeks, it looks like, at number five. Oh, mm. uh, The Twilight Saga, I think it's Eclipse, what, was number yeah. four, which, uh, was just in its third week. See, the week after that, it was still number one after it's being there for the second week. Salt came out that week, opening up number oh. two. Despicable, Despicable Me, number three. Number four, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, number five, Twist 43. And then the week after that, still say number one. Um, oh, wow. for a, For its third week, Dinner for Schmucks came out uh, that week, yeah. followed by Salt, Despicable Me, Charlie St. Cloud, which was in its first week. Mm. And then Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore. Was oh. number six. Uh, so, yeah, it did very well on the box office, I would say, uh, especially with its placement. In fact, let's see here. It was number one for its first three weeks. The fourth week went down to number two. Uh, week after that, number four. Week after that, number nine. So, yeah, did very well in the box office, both in placements and its earnings. And you and I can satisfyingly say we contributed to that. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. I think this was the first known film that I saw in the theater. Um, and it was with you. Yeah. So opening weekend, I went and saw this with my parents. I think my sister was probably out of town, maybe on some kind of youth trip or something. Mm -hmm. Saw it with my parents. And then I thought, oh, it just blew my mind when I saw this. I was 15 years old at the time. Yeah. And I thought, Alan, you got to see this movie with me. 
Yep. And this was before you and I had ever really watched like a lot of movies together, I would say. Yeah, this was pretty early on in, I guess, that phase of our lives. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, it was probably like maybe after church one night or something. I don't remember. I just remember you and I went and saw it. We went and saw it on the east side of town at the East Theater. Yeah, it was, and I was like so a, excited. It, wasn't it also like a group of people, too? There's a few others that went with us. I forget who all it was, but I remember there being a group, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right, but I only had eyes for you that <laughs> night. <so. laughs> we saw it that night, and I yes. remember your reaction you were just as mind blown as me and that's something i really love doing as well is going to see a movie and if i love it going to see it with my friends and then getting to see your reaction as well right i remember my initial thoughts on it where i didn't really know what to think uh (laughs) oh yeah i remember i first thinking maybe i don't like it but then the more i thought about it i was like maybe i do like it and then of course since then i've seen it probably about 10 or dozen times for all i know um and the more i watched the more i liked it so yeah i do remember my first reaction being kind of polarizing like what in the world did i just see and then me kind of just slowly falling in love with it as time went on and i think that's usually how like great films are I'm not yeah. trying to show my hand too much here, but I'm just saying that's usually how critically acclaimed films are for at least me is I usually take time to, I got to absorb it. Um, I just remember when I first saw Citizen Kane, I thought, eh, it's not that good. What's all the hype about? Right. Well, surprise, surprise. It's, it is one of the greatest films ever. And when I saw Paul Anderson's There Will Be Blood, which I also showed you. That's right. And I'm like, the first time I saw it, I'm like, Ugh, not that good. But I've returned to it so many times. I'm like, oh, yeah, this this movie is actually pretty phenomenal. Right, <laughs> right. And this film, I've kind of treated like a very nice steak and lobster dinner over the years. Mm-hmm. It's one that I will treat myself to every couple years. Not once a year, but over the years, I'm I kind of have a hankering to return to this movie. Yeah. And the great thing is, this film is so dense that every time I rewatch it, when I rewatched it for this review, there was so much I didn't remember and it did feel like rediscovering it over again. Um, and I know it's also one that's very, it's kind of like a crowd pleaser whenever people do come over Yep. and people are deciding to what movie should we watch. Usually that's one that gets thrown around because people want to see it on the big screen. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I just remember when uh, your family was over here, a few, oh, it was a while ago now. I remember your cousin was like, ooh, Inception, we should watch Inception. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that one was brought out. I forgot about that, yeah. And it's no surprise that the critics loved this movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Audiences and critics love this movie. Scores, uh, IMDb at an 8.8, a very high, very high score (laughs) with a placement of number 13 in the top 250. Not quite the number four of The Dark Knight, but it's still very high on that list. Yeah, so Uh, far as his highest placed film aside from The Dark Knight. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Metascore at a 74, which is a bit lower, I guess, than I was expecting, but still very Mm. respectable. Brighton Tomatoes are at 87 with an audience score of 91. Cinema score at a B plus with letterbox score at a 4.2. So very high scores pretty much all across the board here. Very high scores. The one that speaks the most, and I would say the most accurate reflection of how people feel about this film today is the 8.8 on IMDb. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and it's it's number thir- it's considered the 13th greatest film of all time and it just came out 10 years ago, which is ridiculous. And and it's crazy because we just said last week that Nolan's The Dark Knight is number 4. Yep. Um and so far Nolan so far up to this review Nolan has 5 films. 5 of his 7 films so far uh, up to this review are in the IMDb top 250. That's just stupid. Yeah, the only ones that aren't are his very first film following which is a you know 70 minute very young creation and uh insomnia go listen to our thoughts on why that's not in the imdb top 250 yep now the idea for inception actually has been around for a very long time actually dating Mm -hmm. back to around 2001 when christopher nolan pitched the idea to warner brothers uh now at the time it was a very different movie he was going for he was had more of a uh a horror angle that he was taking on it still keeping it around dreams but taking it more on the along the horror side and said what we get as a heist movie Hmm. he decided that um he wasn't exactly the most experienced for the idea that he had so he wanted to wait until he had you know more filmmaking experience behind him before he actually went into making this uh, well, then he did Batman Begins in the Dark Knight, and then that's when he felt that it was good. He had enough experience at that point so to, to start production. Uh, some pretty big influences were Ma- The Matrix, Dark City, and 13th Floor. Uh, he worked in the script on and off for about 10 years. He was actually in talks with DiCaprio to do uh, to have him in a movie before Inception, uh, but he just never was never available. And then when he, DiCaprio read the script, or in the idea for Inception, he became very intrigued by it. Um, so after pretty much after DiCaprio was like solidified that he was going to come on, that's when Nolan like finished the script. Uh, and then after he got done with the dark Knight, went right into production for inception. Um, so yeah, it's surprising to think that this is a movie that he's had on hand for a long time, but just wanted to wait until the right moment to make it. That really surprised me when I heard Nolan say, he started working on the idea for that film 10 years ago, yep. you know, 10 years from 2010. So yeah, like around 2000, which would have been very close to when he was working on following and memento as well. Yep. And I will say that there are a number of similarities, at least structurally and probably emo- like character emotion wise to memento. Yes, there are some pretty definite uh, callbacks and maybe even homages, but definitely structure-wise, they do feel rather similar in their execution. And uh, his wife, Emma Thomas, who is also the producer on all of his films, she did say, like you were saying, that he would tweak it and rewrite it at the end of each of his films. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting because Nolan said... uh, he was excited to explore the potential of the human mind through this film. Yeah. And he was also talking about how dreaming is a healthy experience, which allows us to view our world in surreal ways, as opposed to other ways of psychological methods. Right. Right. Um, I also noticed he brought back Ken Watanabe and Cillian Murphy, both villains from Batman Begins. That's right. Yeah. Cillian Murphy would, would kind of be a mainstay for a, 
mo- a lot of his movies. Michael Caine is also back, which, as we mentioned in previous podcasts, oh, right. he'll yeah. pretty much be in every single Nolan film from here on out. Um, so, yeah, we do have some returners coming back. No Christian Bale this time, but we do have Cilly Murphy, Michael Caine, and Ken Watanabe. So... People that, and this happens quite often, you know, actors will stick with directors. So we're kind of seeing that now that he's becoming a bigger name. And he would bring Marion Cotier, I don't really know how to pronounce her last name, doing my best, and Tom Hardy, and Celia Murphy, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, they would roll right into his next film, The Dark Knight Rises. Right, exactly. So yeah, he's... And these are already pretty big names, too. Uh, just like how last time we noted with uh, The Dark Knight, there were some pretty big names in that, along with a couple of other movies. This one definitely, uh, as well, has some pretty big names to it. And I would say that's a very Hitchcock move to yeah. work with the same actors you have on on previous projects, because I knew Hitchcock did that a lot. Right. Um, and as for his crew, he did bring back Hans Zimmer to score it. And... The one that shocked me is, um, well, okay, Wally Feister is back with cinematography, mm-hmm. and Lee Lee Smith, I think, is also back with editing. He's edited all of Nolan's films. The only guy that didn't return was Nathan Crowley, who's been his production designer on all of his films. Um, he got Guy Hendricks-Diaz to design this film, um, and the design is utterly brilliant. Oh, yeah. Um, but one, I think uh, Crowley didn't return because after The Dark Knight, he went straight to Michael Mann's Public Enemies with Johnny Depp. Oh, and then okay. in 2012, he does return to The Dark Knight Rises. He does come back to Nolan, so it's not like they had a falling out or anything. But he was also working on Disney's massive sci-fi epic, John Carter, at the same time. Oh, okay. So I think he's like, hey, I want to be there for Inception, but... Disney uh, Disney wants me to do John Carter, so right. kind of don't say no to uh, Disney. Yeah, you can't say no to the mouse. But it did have a pretty good Oscar run. Eight nominations and four wins. So this makes 21 Oscar nominations for Nolan's across seven Nolan films. That's, that's way too many Oscars for one man. So for seven films... Three times as many Oscar nominations. And for uh, this would be Nolan's, Christopher Nolan's personal third Oscar nomination because he was nominated for writing Memento and he was nominated for writing this film and also for Best Picture for this film as well. But yeah, he ended up winning for cinematography, sound mixing, sound editing, and visual effects. Um, he did get a nomination for score. Again, didn't win. Just kind of like The Dark Knight didn't win. Um, but also one for art direction also didn't win. I am very surprised it didn't win for art direction. I, I just... Uh, Alice Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland got it. Which, don't That's get right. me wrong, has great art direction. But I don't know. I'm just saying nobody talks about Alice in Wonderland anymore, do they? Yeah. Yeah. Even when the sequel came out, no one really talked about that one either. And I think a lot of people were also shocked that the social network got the Oscar for original score over Inception. Um, And this is pretty incredible that this is Nolan's first film to be nominated for Best Picture. We argued last week, not amongst each other, but we made the case that The Dark Knight should have been his first film to be nominated for Best Picture. Right. The King's Speech beat this film for original screenplay. 
That's right, it did. And the King's speech is all over the Oscars this year. And the more I'm looking at all of these oh, yeah. nominations, it's everywhere. It's one of those movies where it gets to the Oscars and it gets like a ton of nominations. So King's yeah, it's just, it was everywhere, the 2011 Oscars. Yeah, King's Speech won Best Picture. Yeah. And the Tom Hooper, I believe, is the director. He would go on to also be a big deal with his adaption of Les Miserables two years later in 2012. And, and Cats. It, yes, and to completely fall from grace with his musical <laughs> Cats, which I can't wait to watch. Yeah, I've seen it. Uh, it's quite an interesting movie. But he was at the Oscars a few years later with The Danish Girl. That's true. Yeah, he was really doing great. I don't know what happened with Cats. I haven't seen it yet, so I can't say. This Also, DiCaprio was uh, big this year in Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island. That's right. That's right. And Scott Pilgrim versus the world came out this year. Yes, a movie that I know both you and I absolutely love, which we've also reviewed, by the way. Oh, yeah. We love Scott Pilgrim. So definitely go listen to our review of that. Yes. Iron Man 2 came out, which I guess everybody hates. Yeah. Um, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 came out. Um, Insidious franchise was kicked off this year. Tron Legacy returned, which was my first IMAX experience, and I love that movie. Uh, the Town came out. I love that movie as well. The Book of Eli came out. Love it. The Expendables was kicked off this year. Um, M. Night Shyamalan was at the theaters this year with uh, a little film called uh, The Last Airbender. Ah, uh, yeah. The, we reviewed that. That is a movie. <laughs> that is a movie. <laughs> Oh, it's so sad. Yeah, we reviewed all of Shyamalan's films, so definitely yep. go listen to The Last Airbender. Um, Shrek Forever After. Shrek ended oh. with Forever After. Also, yeah. um, Jennifer Lawrence came on the scene in 2010 with her uh, Oscar win for Winter's Bone. That's right. Yeah, I haven't. I still get to see that movie. I have heard about it, uh, but I have not seen it. No, same here. I started it and I haven't finished it. And of course, How to Train Your Dragon kicked off in 2010, which is crazy because the third one just ended last year, right? Yeah, uh, this last year it was up, for, I believe, for a, an Oscar in animation. Yes. Uh, it didn't win, though. But yeah, this was the year that it released. And I remember it being uh, very popular because people were very surprised by how good it was mm -hmm. um, back in 2010. It's been, I don't think I've seen it probably since around the time it came out. So I, I don't remember much from it. And also uh, the remake of True Grit was that year. And that was also pretty prominent. It went up in, with Inception with a number of Oscars. Yeah. Haley Steinfeld actually got an Oscar or got a nomination for it um, for True Grit. Oh, I remember wow. that too. Yeah. yeah, I saw that movie in the theaters and I liked it. Jeff Bridges did good. Matt Damon was in it. I think the only reason that it was so good. It got so many things is it's a Coen brothers movie. I think a lot of people forget that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I've heard it's either just as good or better than the original. I haven't seen the other, but I really want to. I've seen the original a few times. It's very good. It's, it's a definite recommend. I guess I'm going to eat my words here a little bit. Um, it true grit was nominated for 10 Oscars. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> so it's uh inception. True Grit and The King's Speech were the three big movies of 2011 Oscars. And The Social Network. And The Social Network, yeah, that one too. 
Um, and if you want, True Grit streaming on Prime Video right now, I saw. So Ooh. I might have to return to that one. I might have to watch it, yeah. Alan, do you remember seeing the trailer for this movie in 2010? I know that I've seen it. I don't remember a whole lot from it. I mostly remember the music. Uh, Mind Heist was the track that played. And I remember everyone was fired up about it because it was so good when it first came out. Mm -hmm. uh, so I barely remember this trailer, but I do remember I I do remember seeing it. Um, so yeah, it was actually kind of interesting to return to it, seeing you know how intriguing the idea was because I remember being kind of mystified with you know what exactly Inception was all about. So returning to it now, uh, it definitely I would say it would get me at least in the theater because it's it comes off as somewhat of an action movie, but there it's an action movie inside of dreams. Um, and that's about as much as we know there's something to do with the wife. Um, and that's about as far as the trailer goes. So it, I would say it would get me in the seats. I would say that this is a trailer that would really intrigue me if I were uh, more of what I am now back in 2010. These are the best trailers for Nolan film yet. And I would even say they're better trailers than what I saw with The Dark Knight. Um, the theatrical, theatrical teaser is very exciting. And the first theatrical trailer alone gives me chills. Uh, I mean, this looks like nothing I had ever seen before. And I do appreciate there's very minimal explanation. It gets me very intrigued. And the more I watched, I watched every theatrical trailer and every TV spot for this because they were on the Blu-ray. And I it did bring me back after watching enough of them. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing those on TV and just super intrigued, like, what is this movie about? And I'd say it's a pretty comparable experience now to seeing the trailers for Tenant. Yeah. Because I don't know a dang thing about what that movie's going to be about. But nevertheless, I'm super intrigued to see it. Yeah, I do actually get some uh, Inception vibes watching that Tenant trailer the oh, more yeah. I think about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. But absolutely, clearly this watching these trailers did get me in the theater opening weekend and within opening week twice. Yeah, yeah. All right, listeners, if you haven't seen Inception, where have you been? <laughs> yeah. But if you haven't, nevertheless, that's okay. This is, I kind of envy you because this will be the first time you get to experience it. And it's uh, a very exciting experience, I would say. So if you haven't seen Inception and you don't want the film spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and watch the film and then come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Okay. Huh. <laughs> While you were having a heyday with the uh, memento summary, I had a very fun time piecing this one together. Okay. Oh, that was that's, that's thick. Yeah, it's a thick one. I did a lot of minimization, so hopefully it's not too confusing, but here we go. Dom Cobb, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and Arthur, played by jo Joseph Gordon-Levitt, are extractors. But they specialize in by getting information through people's dreams. When we first meet them, they've attempted an extraction on a man named Saito, played by Ken Watanabe, um, an owner of a very large energy company. The plan goes awry, however, when, he, when Saito realizes what their plan is. Come to find out, Saito is looking for some professional extractors, just the ones that he's run into. He tells Cobb that if he finishes the job he laid out for him, he would be able to go home and see his kids. But 
In order for him to do this, he must perform Inception, a near impossible task of planting an idea, whereas they've always specialized in just pulling out information from a person's mind. You see, Saito's plan is to plant an idea in a competitor's mind to dissolve his father's company. Cobb accepts this and gathers his team, Ariadne, who is played by Ellen Page, who will construct the dreams, Eames, played by Tom Hardy, who will become a different person, also known as a forger, um, Yusuf, played by Dulip Rao, who conducts the sedative for them to go under, to go as deep as they need to go, and Robert Fisher, played by Cillian Murphy, the competitor to Saito, the subject the team will plant the idea in. Saito buys out the airline Robert is flying in order to give the team enough time to get to Robert. The first level is a rainy city block in Los Angeles. They pick up Robert in a taxi, but are soon ambushed by Robert's projections. The group nearly escapes with their lives, but Saito is shot in the process, leaving, leaving them with very limited time before he plunges into limbo, forgetting all about his deal with Cobb. Cobb explains to Ariadne that, uh, the, what the deal is with his wife, who will randomly show up and cause havoc for Cobb when he's in these dreams. You see, Cobb knows Inception is possible because he tried it on Maul first. He planted the idea after there were so many after there were so many levels deep that her world wasn't real. Unfortunately, this idea became her reality, and she got to the point where she stood out on a ledge and asked Cobb to jump with her so they could see their real children again. Cobb is unsuccessful in talking her down, and she jumps. Cobb then goes on the run away from his family. The team decides to continue the job. They drop the idea that Robert's father had a different idea in mind, mostly through his uncle Peter Browning, for, forged by Eames himself. Yusuf's job is to evade the deadly projections as the rest of the team goes under one more time to another level, which this time is a hotel. Here they plant the second idea. Cobb reveals to Robert that he is actually in a dream and that there are people trying to extract information from his mind, which in turn is actually turning Robert's subconscious against itself any access to the third level, a snow base. Here, the projections are on high alert and more deadly than before. Saito's condition worsen, worsens. Just before Robert is able to get the last piece of puzzle and finish the job, Maul appears and kills Robert, sending him into limbo. Cobb and Ariadne head into limbo themselves to get Fisher, but Cobb stays to find Saito to remind him of the deal they made, as at this point, he is dead and also in limbo. We reach what we opened with, where the two men slowly begin to remember what the, the deal that they had made. The group awaken as the plane is landing and the idea with the idea being successfully planted in Fisher's mind to dissolve his father's company. Sider remembers the plan he made to Cobb, making the phone call to allow him to walk through customs no problem. When they land, Cobb has no trouble walking through custom, customs and is later picked up by his father, who takes him home. Cobb returns to his house, his house and spins the top one, more, one last time as he embraces his kids and the top begins to wobble before cutting to black and the credits roll. Okay, I think I got it all. You did it. Now, it is interesting because, once again, with a Nolan film, you have to pay attention. And if you were paying attention, then I would say you're able to follow the movie. It's not one of those movies where no matter how razor sharp my attention is, I'm still going to be lost. It's not one of those yeah. movies, I would say. Yeah, he does a very good job of, even though... The details are very specific and get very convoluted, and there's a lot of information that is here. The core story is very, very easy to follow. Yeah. The uh, the extra details are things that I would say uh, 
are things that you would probably just return to the movie to find more out about. And that was what happened with me, is I had a hard time figuring out what every character's role was in the story. The fact that Eames is a forger, he'll he'll become another character in the dream to move the main subject down a certain line. You have Ariadne who constructs the dreams. You have so many other people that are a part of this process. And I think that's what initially confused me. But the main story, I never really found anything to be too confusing because the main story is easy to follow, but still packs a punch when you get to those later scenes. There was only a couple times where I just slightly reround because I wanted to make sure I understood the dialogue they were saying, like understand exactly what was going on. But I did watch it with subtitles, so I highly recommend you watch this with subtitles. Yes, that, that would that definitely helps. Now, the way Nolan starts this film off very much reminds me of Memento because Memento is starts at the very end of the film. And in yep. many ways, this film begins with Cobb washing up on the shore of Saito's unconscious. And Saito has been in limbo for, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 years, probably. Yeah. And um, then all of a sudden it jumps back in time or not really too far back in time. It technically jumps a, probably a couple days back in reality time and not dream time. And Saito is a young man again. And uh, that whole section will come towards the end of the film and you'll learn what is going on there. It's a very intriguing way to start off the film. And no one did this on purpose because he wanted to essentially recreate the feeling of a dream right off the bat. Yeah. And within a dream, you are always dropped into situations. You're never really given much context of the situation. And slowly you become oriented um, to the reality of the dream as you begin to come out of it. So we're confused. Right. I'd say we're pretty confused right off the bat with... Um, these characters, what they're trying to accomplish, and this lady is showing up that Cobb knows, and she's going to shoot him, and you realize they're in a dream. And surprise, which I had forgot about this, I forgot they were they were even within a dream as well, and right. they wake up from that on a train in Tokyo. Right, and I think that's the thing I love the most, is that it doesn't start off with them just, oh, there's already in a dream, right? Which... Is you know kind of cool, but at the same time, you know, it's been done before. How about instead of just being them being just in a dream, how about they're a dream within a dream? That's what I think makes this opening so interesting, at least for the first time I watched it, <laughs> was seeing that you no, know, not they're not just one level deep. No, they're dreaming within this dream. That's I think what makes this movie almost instantly uh intriguing is because you're already two levels deep, and then we'll find out later they go three and then later four levels deep technically when they go into limbo. And the thing I appreciate is that Nolan doesn't pull these shenanigans by introducing Limbo at the beginning of like the third act. Right. The movie opens in Limbo. Yeah, it does. And so we are introduced to Limbo to begin with, but we're not sure exactly what we're seeing. But yeah, then it does go um, a dream within a dream. And um, I just find it interesting on the Blu-ray. They included a full motion comic with music attached to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I've watched part of that. I had never, even though I've owned this Blu-ray for, you know, about 10 years, I've never watched it before until this recording. 
Yep. And I would say there is some helpfulness to it. It it leads up right directly before the movie begins. It's called The Cobble Job. And so I would say if you want some more context to kind of help orient you a little better within the story and characters, um, I would say that would be helpful because they teamed with Cobol. And you do hear Cobol thrown around a few times in this movie. I just remember when I first watched it, I was so lost. I couldn't figure out who Cobol was. I was just always trying to play catch up with this. But if you've seen this a few times, it's pretty straightforward who these yeah. players are, but they're trying to steal this information because global engineering is in the process of bidding to build an oil pipeline up the entire East coast of Africa. Hence why Cobol is in Africa when Cobb goes there, but that endeavor is being financed by Fisher Morrow, which is the energy conglomerate whose major competitor happens to be Mr. Saito and uh, Cobalt Engineering wants to steal that information from Saito to sway Fisher Morrow in giving them the contract. So this is the whole corporate espionage side of it. And right. what becomes pretty ironic is that Saito easily moves um, Cobb and his people over to working for him instead of Cobalt. Cobalt says, if you fail us, we're going to turn you over to the American authorities. Saito says, if you succeed, I'll let you go home again. Right, right. And it's also interesting, too, because it, this is a movie about planting ideas, right? It's a movie that, uh, and they even state this a couple of times, you know, an idea can be something that either will define you or could destroy you. Mm -hmm. And we see kind of both sides of that, um, one with Fisher and then one with Maul. Uh, whereas with Maul, she, the idea that Cobb had planted destroys her, whereas with Fisher, the idea that is planted maybe even... Uh, goes on for him to be successful. We don't really know. But it is, it's something that necessarily destroys him. Right. Either way, uh, it's interesting because you get, that kind of starts off with uh, just, um, with Saito's character and then Cobb. Saito plants this idea of hope into, inside of Cobb. Says, okay, I can give you your kids back. You, you, of course, you just need to follow through with uh, with this plane. You, need to go, you actually need to plant the idea of inside of Fisher. And so you get this idea of hope being planted inside of our main character that he has the potential to go home. And as this movie stated, it kind of becomes uh, something that either, either not something that kind of defines him, but at the same time, it's his driving force is this idea that he's latched onto, which is hope. And Hopefully he'll be able to see his kids again. And that's the brilliant thing is that this is a story within a story. It deals with kind of a overarching meta narrative of corporate espionage of these two global superpowers yep. trying to take one of them down in very fascinating ways through the seemingly impossible uh, use of inception. But then the the real story is about Cobb and Maul. And yep. I would say at the very heart of this story, this is a story about relationships and exploring relationships on an intimate level. Um, because it's very interesting how um, Cobb finds Maul safe where she put her to token in there or totem. Mm -hmm. And he's the one that plants the idea of Inception, which ruins her and eventually drives her to suicide. She doesn't believe it's suicide, though. She believes she'll wake up from the dream. And it's interesting because on the flip side of that, it's simultaneously, it seems like... Um, Cillian Murphy's character opens up a safe and he finds the pinwheel 
from yeah. a great memory. And uh, the totem destroyed Maul, but the pinwheel basically saved Cillian Murphy from feeling these horrible feelings of anguish of not living up to his father. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because this is not the first time that no one has dealt with ideas. We noted this in, uh, I think most notably it would be Batman Begins, this idea of fear um, overtaking somebody and eventually destroying them. And then again, we have that with uh, The Dark Knight, you know, we have that idea of chaos. It's the, what it is, is they're planting the idea of, uh, you know, is a, is a person good or are, is a person good when when you really break it down or are they not? This idea of chaos is, you know, it, no one is very centered around ideas, not necessarily about other things, uh, external forces. He's more mm -hmm. of a, he's more interested in more of the idea of something. What if we take this idea and expand upon that? that that's what he says in this one. It makes it so powerful is, like he says, an idea planted inside somebody can be either their destruction or it can be their success. And I think that that's what makes his film so intriguing is because there's a lot to what he talks about. There's a lot to the subjects that he brings up in his movies. And it's because their ideas are not really concrete. That's what makes these movies so interesting and so enjoyable. He did also introduce that in The Dark Knight as well. He explored the ideologies of like the Joker and Batman and yeah. these ideas that the Joker had and how eventually he will get influenced characters to seemingly do things they never would have done before. And right. like you said, they, those are more so done through external circumstances instead of these like more internal mind games as you will. But yeah, the persuasion of reality and how people view that is a very important to Nolan's cinematic oeuvre. Um, especially as we see in Memento, Memento deals not so much with ideas, but with the truth. And we all kind of have our own um, subjective view of reality. But then we know there is an overall objective view of reality. Because right. we see like Maul, for instance, her subjective view had become so warped that she believed that the world wasn't real. And the only way to wake up from it was to die. And um Cobb his whole thing is that I know that's I know that's not true I know this world is real but nevertheless he's always ready to shoot himself to get out of a false reality to awake into a real reality I mean it's really just incredible when you think about it yeah and I think that's what makes Cobb's character so interesting is that he's living in the nightmare that he accidentally created himself he's mm -hmm. living in his own perspective of reality because he was the one who planted this idea inside of his wife's mind, the idea that her world around her isn't exactly as real as she thinks it is. And she becomes to believe that she's living in a dream. And so when we get that scene, not long after the first job that we see goes bad, and he's in his hotel and he's spinning the top and he's getting ready to shoot himself. Uh, it's interesting to see that, you know, if he, he's, He's constructed this nightmare to a point where Maul's character is just is literally just a projection from himself, his subconscious, but is infecting everything that he does. And it's a thing that gets to a point where it's all, mostly fueled by his guilt, where the job that they're on gets so at risk because of Cobb and his subconscious that he 
literally has to, he literally almost costs the lives of his team and takes the responsibility to go down and, and solve it for himself. So it's really, I think it's what makes his character so interesting is seeing how, you know, this guilt that he has for planting this idea infect him. And then also something that he also ends up having to kind of self-forgive him, has to forgive himself for doing in the end and save his team, not only his team, but also himself. It's really interesting how Nolan writes his char the character of Cobb. Yeah, absolutely. And it's even like, it's really incredible to think that he is no longer the master of his own reality. He's become yeah. a slave, a subject to dreams. And yep. um, you, you notice, I believe it's his father-in-law. Maybe it's his father. I think it's his dad. You're talking about Michael Caine? Yeah. I think it's his dad. Okay. I yeah. have never been quite clear on that every time, but he is the one that taught him how to dream, how to yeah. build within dreams. And, um, you learn that he does have this guilt that dreams were never supposed to be used to make money, to trick people into things. It was supposed to be a creative beneficial thing for mankind and not some warped things going to drive people to kill themselves and question reality and question the truth and objectivity. And so he's, he's turned it into a real nightmare. And I think the scene that probably really hits me the most with Cobb's predicament is when he is getting off the plane with Saito and he's saying, do I have a choice? And that's also a really big thing in Nolan's films is like freedom of choice, like the battle of free will. Yeah. And Cobb just asking, do I have a choice shows that uh, he's really become a slave to some very powerful people. And Saito says, yeah, you do have a choice. And he's saying, but you have a choice to keep living in on the run, or you can make the choice to do this one last job with me. And you'll gain your freedom from that, which is ironic in himself. In order to achieve freedom from his circumstances, he has to delve farther into the situation than he really ever has before. Yeah, exactly. He has to do the thing that he pretty much... Uh, the so he has to do the thing that caused him to go on the run in the first place. Mm -hmm. He has to perform Inception again. Uh, and I like the idea that visual too at the very end when he finally uh when he's going to see saito for the last time and he's in the limo for the last time we see him it's really cool because we get to see him wash up on a beach which is right after he lets go of maul and forgives himself and we get to see how he literally washes up almost as if he's born again on this beach and confronts saito and reminds him of the deal that they made. I like that. I love that visual. I didn't notice it till this time mm -hmm. when I was watching it, that visual of him washing up on this beach, which we do see in the opening, but without the context, it's hard to have that emotional weight until we get to the very end of the movie and we see the journey leading up to that point. It is an absolutely powerful depiction and one of the best depictions probably of the mind on film, I would say. A lot of times films will depict, or even short stories or stories, for instance, will depict the mind as a house with many rooms or yeah. as a maze, um, kind of like in The Shining with the maze at the Overlook Hotel. So a house is very prominent for a mind, but this is interesting because they create a whole city and you can see how the whole city, it's meant to look like, like a landscape, like cliffs, and it's just yeah. deteriorating as they just wash up on the shore of it. 
And uh, it's just a new world that they can create. But at the same time, this whole limbo area, which is interesting because limbo is kind of a Middle Ages Christian Catholic Christian construct. Yeah. Um, that's not really exactly what they do with it in this movie, but it's basically just this state of nothingness. Like you can't really achieve any true progress down there in there. But the symbolism in this movie is, I'd say, pretty powerful. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's also really cool too, because you do get to see, well, again, Cobb has to face the, pretty much the out, he has to face what he has done, right? He goes back to Limbo and he gets to see what was left from when him and Maul were there, which is pretty much the, he's like the only person really that's ever actually done anything there um, is build what him and Maul had constructed. That's what exists there in Limbo. And that's kind of what Arthur says at one point when they, uh, when Saito was shot and they pulled into that like uh, garage, he says, there's nothing down on Limbo except whoever was there last. Um, whoever left something behind and that's which is Cobb and it's cool to see that visualization of this like deteriorating city um, that him and Maul created and how it kind of is partially due to the fact that you know him and Maul haven't really been together for so long uh, or haven't been haven't been together for a very long time because she died in somewhat recent times and you get to see how much of that is deteriorated and I also love the visual of Maul as well because Maul is she when she when you see her she comes off as very very angry all the time but that's because that's uh Cobb's subconscious view of her that's what his mind is making up because of mostly fueled again by the guilt that he has of the act that he acts the act that he has put upon her which is planting that idea and this isn't the second time that no one has used character names that have an actual meaning in real life with words because in yeah. Spanish, mall means bad. Right. And um, also in insomnia, detective dormer, dormir in Spanish means to sleep. Right. Yeah. So there's definitely, definitely a play on names. Speaking of which, Cobb is pulled from his very first film uh, following. Well, there's oh, a yeah. character in there called Cobb. That's so right. Makes a comeback. That's right. Cobb is the thief in following. And which I was confused because I... I remembered Tom Hardy's character being called Cobb. So oh, yeah. It's really confused this time watching. But, and it is interesting because Maul is supposed to be his loving wife, but she has a very jealous side, which always turns to be violence. But that's yeah. just a projection of her. So it's part of his subconscious um, sabotaging himself to stay down in limbo where he is able to fix the mistakes of his life yeah. because when um, he's dreaming and which we find is the only way he can dream is by putting himself under and Ariadne goes into his mind, which um, he creates different um, kind of portraits, which are accessed through the elevator. Yeah. And he says, this is the only way that I can change um, these mistakes I've made in the past. And that scene really hit me because those changes have real no bearing in reality. He can't, you can't really change the past, but in his dreams, he's able to create a perfect world that right. um, is not um, encumbered by all of his mistakes. And he's also able to kind of free himself from the guilt of his wife dying. Now, it's a powerful moment in the end of the film when he does confront Maul and he says, 
you would never live up to all the perfections and imperfections of my real wife. Yeah. And there's that really, uh, I'd say really breathtaking moment. It gives you chills when she says it's in. And once again, it's interesting because she's saying, you said we would grow old together. Now that's a projection of his mind. He's the one that has to come to terms with this, not her. Yeah. And he comes to terms with it and finally says, we did grow old together. And you realize that they were down in limbo for about 70 years right. and lived into about probably their hundreds at least. Uh, that's pretty brilliant. And that, that also plays into the editing, I would say as well. This film is so oh, yeah. well edited. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is this is a film where, uh, again, this really shows as if it hadn't before, this really shows not only how good of a storyteller the Nolan brothers are, it also shows how well edited their movies are because again, like, with pretty much every movie, it's the editing that kind of ends up telling, it's called, editing is called the last rewrite of the story, right? Mm. So it really shows, you know, how good the editing is in these movies when it's told as well as they are. And this is no exception. This is told very, very well. And the edit also edited very, very well, just like his last few movies. It's really shocking this did not get an Oscar for editing, not even a nomination. Yeah. Got it for sound editing. Yeah, there's a reason that Nolan works with Lee Smith every time. Um, and there is that visual consistency across all of Nolan's films. And Nolan really does this brilliant thing I've loved. And he's he's done this probably back to Memento, at least to Insomnia with the editing, where, um, and I've always loved this, I would say this is a lot of uh, foreign directors, older foreign directors have done this as well where they will overlay either a memory or a flashback on top of the current scene that is happening, but they won't include audio within that flashback. Kind of like how we would really think in real life. When we create those memories, we conjure up the images, but that's just it. And they're always quickly interspersed. Nolan, Nolan and Lee Smith do a fantastic job doing that here as well. Um, like when Cobb and Ariadne are creating a dream, and he says, is this place real? And she says, yeah, I walk here to school every day. And all of a sudden, Cobb starts remembering him and Maul having, sharing a nice little beautiful moment together, just kind of like laughing and holding each other on that bridge. And that's just an example of how that editing also affects the emotion of the scene. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also, one thing that I would say affects the emotion of the scene is the score. Um, here mm, for this movie mm -hmm. because Hans Zimmer's return from The Dark Knight and Batman Begins. Uh, and I would say this is, and especially the song Time, uh, which is very iconic at least at this point. Uh, this is probably, uh, this I would say is tied with The Dark Knight with probably the best score that we have of no one so far. Yeah, I would, I would absolutely say that as well. Um, I did put that in my notes and... I would say it's probably the greatest blend of visuals with a soundtrack that I can think of. And not just within the context of Nolan, but where the visuals and it blends. Now, when when we rewatch Interstellar, maybe I'll say it's Interstellar because I remember that one impacting me a lot as well. Yeah. But the score here is just incredible. I would say it's consistently better than The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight has some of those kind of weird moments where it is like just those two notes being played together and those create like a character theme. But yeah. let's, I just want to talk about my favorite scene here. And 
it does involve the score as well. It all comes together so beautifully. And my favorite scene is the kick once all of the dreams are coming to their climax. When Ariadne falls off the building in limbo because she has to give herself such a powerful kick to come back up into the third or fourth level of the dream. And it's that close up shot as her face as she's just like falling from the skyscraper. And then um, her face, it cuts to her face rising up in the elevator in zero gravity and her eyes open. Oh my gosh, I get chills every time I watch that. No matter what, no matter how many times I see this movie, I get chills. Definitely the best track is right before, it's not long before that scene happens actually that's probably my favorite track and my favorite part of the movie uh is it's the track uh it's called don't think about elephants it's not i don't know if it's on <laughs> the the regular regular edition of the soundtrack but i know it exists um that part of the movie is probably my favorite part is right before everyone heads down into limbo it's that scene up until that point uh that is definitely my favorite yeah and uh I, I was just thinking of that scene. It's such a funny scene when he's like, don't think about elephants. What are you thinking about? Elephants. Yeah. <laughs> I always love that part. Yeah. But yeah, um, that scene mixed with the score and that's happening all at the same time that Cobb is coming to terms with Maul and Limbo. And as I said, when they, when they are growing old together and he answers, they did. Uh, oh, every time I'm, and I'd probably say that whole entire sequence, that climactic sequence, also at the very same time when um, Fisher is realizing that his dad, which is not probably technically true, but his dad says, you're not a failure. I'm just disappointed that you tried. All of it is happening at once with the score of that whole bomb, bomb, yep. bomb, bomb, and everything is converging all at once. Probably, I'm probably going to say this, the best edited and uh mixed sequence ever in the history yeah. of cinema right there yeah oh. and i gotta and you can't understate the power that the score has of this movie because uh with the bomb bomb that it made up it was copied again and again and again and again <laughs> and again in Hollywood for years. And I would say even now we're still trying to get rid of it. It still pops up every once in a while. That's something that's because of the score, because of how iconic it was, Transformers copied it. Pretty much any action movie for the next couple of years copied it. It was everywhere. That bomb, bomb that uh, that was made up. I, actually, it was from the French song that they use for the kick. That, yeah. That's what it was derived from. That's right. That French song is really cool when it plays yeah. in real life and then it echoes into the dream and you know that something is about to happen. And that's also just a great audible cue to heighten the suspense as well. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. One thing I learned while watching the Blu-ray features on this is how much practical effects they used. And this is a thing with Nolan. He's like, we're going to go practical as much as we can and maybe use some CGI to enhance the scene or make it less dangerous. One thing that shocked me, I couldn't believe this was real, is when Cobb and Ariadne are sitting at the French cafe and the cafe blows out and the car flips and it all blows out. That's practical. Really? Yes. They tested that so many times and they showed the footage to 
DiCaprio and to oh what's her name that plays Ariadne? Yeah, Ellen Page. And they're like, yeah, are you guys uh, okay with this? We're really going to blow this cafe and flip this car in front of you. And they're like, okay, let's do it. So they did it. Um, the only thing is they added the glass. They yeah. added little bits of glass. And um, of course, when everything kind of slowly starts to like pop together, no one wanted that to have this like underwater feel like time is slowing down and everything is like moving slower, like it's underwater. But I'm yeah. shocked. Yeah, they really did blow that out and flip the car. That's that's okay. not CGI. I thought for like years that was CGI. Mm -mm. That's ridiculous. I that's actually no, I didn't even know. One of my favorite parts is the action scene in the hotel hallway when they're all when they're like rolling around on the ceiling on the walls. Oh, yeah. uh, I watched the special feature on that. They actually built like uh, a, a hallway yes. and then just rotated it. They yes. got the camera stationary and they just rotate this entire hallway, which is absolutely insane to me. That's why that's I think that scene is also iconic all in itself is because nobody else has done that before. I don't think they've taken like literally an entire hallway and you just rotated it to get this effect of of gravity shifting all the way around. There is a really incredible scene on that special feature where no one someone's watching filming Nolan from behind and Nolan's just standing there watching it as the hallway is rotating 360 degrees and Levitt and the stunt actor are just fighting in yep. 360 degree motion. It's incredible. Yep. And yeah, they did build that hallway to rotate. That's another iconic scene is the hallway fight. And um, also when it goes into like zero gravity. Yes. As well, the way they're able to achieve that is wild. They did use some wires and also some, it kind of looks like a big claw that they kind of like held him onto like a claw arm and he kind of like floated through the hallway that way and they just digitally erased it. Yeah. Um, that always blows my mind though, the whole zero gravity effects because to me that looks completely real and I can't mm -hmm. understand how it looks that real. Yeah, I know with um, a lot of, movies they'll there is a special plane that they use that can kind of simulate zero gravity oh, wow. um they I think that they use that for apollo 13 uh oh, and that's they, an older one. They, <laughs> a lot of a lot of camera operators got sick on that one <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah I, I i always assumed that that's what it was but i guess no i guess they just use wires which is even cooler in my mind because it looks so real it looks like they actually took them up in that plane and then uh filmed it that way it does also I would say this whole like floating around zero gravity thing, at least to my knowledge, really kicked off here in Inception. And that's another thing we've seen so much. Yeah. Um, that became a really popular effect. We saw that in Gravity with Sandra Bullock. And it's even in the beginning of Rampage with The Rock. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And that looks pretty good in the beginning, too. I, it gave me hope the first two minutes until I saw the rest of the movie. <laughs> but um, also, they did rotate the hallway, and they also built the hallway vertical, like standing up vertical. Um, so when they're like kind of like dropping through the hallway as well. I know that uh, when they were editing it, Lee Smith said that um, they held a lot of those takes um, without cutting it because it was just so gripping and mesmerizing watching these yeah. people actually fight as they flipped through uh, gravity in the hallway that they really wanted to keep those takes along for the editing process. Yeah. Um, also, this is another effect I didn't realize is when 
Um, Cobb does the, um, what's it called? The Mr. Mr. Something scenario where he pretends that he is uh, Fisher security. You remember what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he alerts him to the reality of the dream yeah. in order to trick him. Um, and you see like uh, the water kind of shift and the glasses shift mm -hmm. and everything start to shift. They built that as an actual giant set and they rotated it 40. They um, tilted it 45 degrees. I wondered if that's what they did because I, after seeing the hallway, I, it wasn't too far of a stretch of imagination to think that they would do the same thing with that uh, diner scene. Or I guess the bar scene, I guess is what it is. Yeah. And they said a third of the stunt coordinators they had try out for it couldn't handle it. They couldn't do it. Really? Wow. Yeah. It, it was that big of a deal. Um, and I was shocked because in the movie, they said they purposely wanted to make it look kind of slight in the movie. But it does look crazy when you watch everything move 45 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they also used a semi truck and constructed the outside to look like a train. So that's how they drive the train through downtown Los Angeles. That's right. I do remember they, uh, I'm watching a featurette on that too, as well, where they told what they did to pull the train through the middle of the street. Because it's kind of hard to do that, you know, just in the middle of Los Angeles. <laughs> right. To just drive a train straight through the street. Yeah. Yeah. And they also were really worried because it doesn't rain very much in LA. Yeah. And they're like, we got to make this look like a rainy day. So they took super massive cranes and they used giant screens, blackout screens to block out the sun. And they put them up on buildings to like block out like a whole strip of LA. Oh, wow. And then giant uh, rain machines as well. So could have fooled me. It looks like a dark rainy day. It does, yeah, it there. does. And they were also, uh, this was also difficult because rain in the daytime doesn't look as good as rain at night, they said, or gunfire, excuse me, gunfire in the daytime, because they yep. had a lot of gun battle scenes in the day. So that was another thing they had to deal with. Um, and one other thing I was shocked to learn was um, when they're walking around through the empty streets of Limbo, that's uh, actually in Morocco. Really? I thought that was a set, but it wasn't. That's in Morocco. They just cleared it out for shooting and um, they did like a big aerial shot. And those are just like people's apartments in Morocco. Wow. I didn't even realize that. I thought, yeah, I thought that was a set that they built, but wow. Okay. Interesting. It is interesting. And I'm like, how did they achieve some of these visuals? Because they're truly groundbreaking visual effects for this film. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say this is definitely, this one, and again, The Dark Knight, kind of shows how much influence uh, Christopher Nolan has as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Because not only with the bomb bomb with the score, but also like we were talking about some of that zero gravity fighting uh, and smaller elements from this movie in Dark Knight will, will be copied in some kind of a way in other Hollywood pictures. He has exerted an incredible influence, yeah, on how oh, yeah. some of the stuff has turned out. Yeah. And which is exciting because I think he has kind of paved the way for other filmmakers to be able to take more chances and not just do another $200 million remake or part five of something. Right, exactly. The only disappointing element I have with this film is when Ariadne is in Cobb's dream and she comes up into the elevator and uh, Maul and Cobb are talking together. And then when it looks like Maul kind of looks at the camera, but she's looking at Ariadne and there's that like, 
jump note scare right yeah. there. That always feels out of place. It just doesn't feel like it needs to be in this movie. Yeah, I can forgive that a little bit because it is very much kind of Cobb's nightmare, more or less with uh, with his wife, Maul. And I would say that there are a lot of mm, the horror. There are a lot. There are a few horror elements here in this movie. Yeah, um, there definitely that, are. Yeah, that carry over from the original concept. Um, but yeah, watching it this time, remember in the theater that I do remember that specifically got me. Oh, yeah. Um, got me this but, time, too. <laughs> Yeah, but looking back on it and watching it again, it's not nearly, I guess, as impactful as what it was back when I first watched it. But yeah, I can I can definitely see that. Uh, one of my, and it's kind of hard to say it's a criticism of this movie, and we've seen this before. It's I've mentioned it, We I guess we both have mentioned it multiple times in previous reviews. His characters are kind of walking exposition spillers, um, but I can kind of forgive it a little bit this time because this movie is so dense and is so detailed that sometimes it's best that they just spell it out to you um, what exactly is happening and what the plan is because there is so much going on in this story that I feel without that it would make it way too convoluted to follow. The one thing that I do appreciate they at least do is they make it more so like a tutorial or lesson. And when they ever, when they do explain something or set it up, then they usually follow it through right away with jumping into a dream. And it's like, okay, we just, it's kind of like a video game in certain ways where it's like, we just taught you how to do this. Now you go out and try it yourself. Right. And you see them trying to figure things out as well. And I at least like that some of the hypos, uh, hypos, high position, I've just created a new word. (laughs) Some of the exposition is also hypothetical as well, because it's Cobb believing they can achieve this or Yusuf thinking they can create a powerful enough sedative. Um, so yeah, I would say the exposition is not too bothersome to me whatsoever in this film. And of course, in every movie, you kind of have to have an audience sort of character. And that's Ariadne who doesn't understand any of this stuff. She needs it explained to her just like we do as well. I will say he's gotten a lot better from like Batman begins, for instance, which was, was one of, the worst instances of it so far, I would say. And especially because I would say I couldn't connect with those characters as much in Batman Begins. No one's writing has vastly improved. Yes, absolutely. Even though I still take issue with, you know, the very clunky exposition that he has, I would say that he is this character that he builds here feel a lot more believable than they have in movies past. This is, I feel his best, uh, in terms of characters, the best, uh, character driven movie that he's had so far. Um, because those, these characters here, they feel a lot more relatable than they have in previous movies. And that, and especially with Cobb's character, which, you know, needs to be relatable for his, you know, his story to make a lot of sense to the audience. Um, I think that's what really shines. Oh, absolutely. Cobb is very relatable and his dilemma between not wanting to see his children's faces within the dream, because he fears that would sway him to ultimately give in to the dream as his reality. I love that part where he looks away and doesn't want to look at them. Um, Yeah, the dynamic he set up, the marital dynamic he set up, which does give me some vibes also with Memento, how um, the main character in Memento, Leonard, um, creates a false story concerning his wife as well as the Sammy Jenkins plot line. Yeah. And then you realize he is the one that caused the downfall of his wife. 
And he's been kind of lying to himself about that. There's some crossover here with Cobb, but no one's clearly taken it to the next level. I'm into these characters. I'm into also the uh, Fisher storyline with him and his dad. So these like very parent child or uh, spousal relationships, like you said, they definitely really shine in this movie. Yeah. Now. Okay. I think we got to talk about this. The very end, the final shot where the the top, we do not see the top fall. How, how do you feel about that? Do you remember, you remember your first feelings of it or how they compare to it now? Like, what do you see of it? So for the longest time, me, like I would say probably many other people um, thought that it would he was indicating that you know was he in a dream was he was was he not in a dream when the movie ended and i remember watching an interview with christopher nolan where he explains this and he says that the question of is he in a dream or is he not in a dream is the wrong question to ask because that's not what he's getting at what he's getting at is is he going to walk away from uh his wife and let go of what he's done or is he going to come back to it? And that's indicated by the top spinning. You know, when he when he begins to wobble and then it cuts to black after he's already walked away from it, that shows to us that, you know, he, he's walked away from what has happened with his wife. He's for he's forgiven himself. He's he's been able to move on from it. Not necessarily that is he in a dream or is he not in a dream. I can see where people can drag that or can can pick that up, but I don't necessarily see that. I see that as him walking away from the guilt that he's had because the top was the thing that was the idea that he planted inside of her mind. So I think that one just makes a lot more sense to me. It has a lot more impact than the oh was it is he in a dream or is he not in a dream uh, version of the ending. Yeah, that's a very good explanation of it. I had never even thought of it that way, I guess. When you do go back and think about it, Cobb, whenever he does spin the top, he just hones in on that. He gets his gun ready Yeah. (laughs) in case. But the fact that he goes through this ordeal with Saito and Saito follows through with the phone call and he gets to go through customs and he does get to see his children again, I would say that does give the viewer hope that he is living in reality. Now, I think there is some probably postmodern interpretation to this that he creates, he chooses his own reality. It doesn't even matter if he's within a dream or something. Yeah. I just remember the first time I saw it being frustrated. (laughs) (laughs) When I first saw it, I'm like, what? What kind of, don't do that to us. Yeah. So, I would say that Nolan's explanation is a very good explanation for it. And watching the top, you do see the top wobble. Yeah. And otherwise in the dream. It absolutely wobbles. Yeah. In the dream, it perfectly spins. Mm -hmm. It never, ever gives any hint of wobbling it, which is a cool visual, by the way, watching it perfectly spin. But so in my mind, I always thought it would pan back to the top and the top would be done spinning. It would just be like laying on its side and it'd have like a, I don't know, I guess a very nice, peaceful Hollywood romanticized ending to it. But Mm -hmm. I will say that in some ways, not having the top fall, not showing that to us is still going to be probably my only major criticism of this movie is that taking us on such a vast, emotional, deep journey and then kind of cutting off that finality for us, kind of not giving us 
he does give us closure because he does get back to the family, but then kind of bringing the top back into our focus and then cutting it off. I, I think Nolan is a brilliant filmmaker, but I think here he's trying to be possibly a little too clever with showing us that at the end and, and cutting it off. That's that's my criticism of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I don't really feel the same way, mostly because um, I'm not necessarily viewing it as, you know, as, as I guess we're both viewing it in a little bit different, different way. I'm not necessarily viewing it as, you know, is he or is he not in reality? I see it more as him walking away, completely walking away from uh, the guilt that he used to have with his wife. And that's why I find it not nearly, uh, I guess, as troublesome as you do, is because we see the visual of him walking away, and then you see the top wobble as if to say that, you know, what happened with his wife is done. And his wife controlling what happens in his dreams is no longer what's going to be happening anymore. And so when you see it wobble, then it cuts to black. We get the picture as to what our what this character is going to be doing next, which is pretty much not what we had seen in the movie in this in the two hours and two and a half hours leading up to this moment. That's, I guess that's why I don't see it nearly as troublesome as you do. Do you think there would have been less of an impact, though, if the way I said it is if it would have panned back and the top would have stopped spinning and it's just a shot of the top laying on its side and it had finished its spin? Would that have been less impactful than just cutting to black? Or would it just have conveyed the same sensibilities? I know it cutting to black somewhat leaves it up to your interpretation um, because everybody's going to associate it not so much with him leaving behind the guilt, but with whether he's in the dream or not, because that's what he's trying to figure out. I do love that, what you said about leaving the guilt behind. He's chosen to run to his children instead yeah. of to be transfixed on uh, the top, which has possessed him this whole time. But I'm just wondering, like, would it have felt, I mean, I guess I kind of want this like nice, soft Hollywood ending, I guess, where the top's just <laughs> laying there. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that per se, but I don't know. Would it have maybe knocked the storytelling down a little bit? I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of hard to say because I feel like if going that down that route would could even mean a different movie than what no one had set out to tell in the first place as well. Um, now, that being said, I mean, I guess having the top topple over, um, I don't know. It, it's hard to, it really is hard to say, um, given what Nolan's execution has been all the way up to that point as well. So I don't know. I guess the thing that semi bothers me with it though is, and I'm of the firm belief that he is back in the real world and he's going to leave this dream world behind or else everything we saw kind of would have been for naught. Like he still would have learned his lesson, but it kind of would have been utterly illogical mm -hmm. to say that someone's kept him in this captive dream state forever. And he's created this elaborate ruse of getting back to his children and overcoming his guilt. Right. I don't think there's really anywhere to find that interpretation of it. I guess what I'm a little annoyed by is Nolan's been pretty consistent with his worldview of objective truth, but people can create their own subjective truth within it, like with Leonard within Memento, but he still come down on the side of there is a reality to everything. And this kind of lands on the side of it doesn't really matter if um 
everything is real or not. It's mostly just what matters is what you believe or what you choose to accept. I don't know. That just kind of bugs me a little bit, I'd say. Yeah, I guess I never really got that part either because he definitely tries to show us, you know, what is and is not real. And as we see with Maul's character, she was possessed by this idea that nothing's real, right? That she's always almost constantly in this dream. And so it's maybe even in some ways Cobb battling against, you know, him fault slipping and having the same fate or even having what he has done before happen again to the character of Fisher, where uh, maybe he falls into this limbo um, and even Saito as well. He falls into this limbo of uh, where he's just there forever and kind of loses his, his grasp on reality. And then when we see in, with Saito and him at the very end have that conversation, he even says, come back, come back to reality because Saito's been down there for so many years that it's it's there's maybe in the fear that he's completely lost touch of it. So I would say it's no one more of finding or no one fighting against what is subjective reality versus some of that actual reality and making sure that this is, I would say it's Cobb's kind of character uh, motivation is making sure that fixing his mistakes of what he did with his wife, finding, you know, fixing somebody so that way they don't fall into the same, into the same idea. That being someone's subjective reality, not being what is actually real. I would say that's what no one is going for in this movie. Yeah, I would say those are like very good points and very valid points. And I would agree that that's probably where Nolan weighs out the most in the end of the overall view of the film. I will say, though, that there is little hints of kind of this like postmodernism. It doesn't really matter if it's true. What matters is it, it matters if the belief makes you feel good about it or not. Um, and we see that with Fisher's character because Fisher's Cillian Murphy's character finds the pinwheel and the whole purpose of the inception is to completely alter someone's belief in the truth because his dad was likely very much disappointed in him. But now he is going to live with this feeling that his dad wasn't disappointed with him, which is a much nicer feeling to go with, but it's not true. And that's the thing where I feel like he kind of walks the tightrope there a little bit at the end with Cobb is that Cobb does ultimately achieve what he wants through some great task that he has overcome. But it, once again, it's like um, it doesn't really matter if he is in reality or in a dream. What matters is that he succeeded in overcoming his demons some of that postmodernism, I think, gets a little bit much. We talked about postmodernism uh, in The Dark Knight as well. This is a yeah. little bit of a different variety of it, but at least it creates good conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess, uh, let me ask you this then. Um, do you think it's asking the question, and this is mostly in the character of Fisher, um, do you think it's asking the question of, is to believe in a different reality that of his father not, you know, believing instead of his father being dis disappointed at him, being the opposite, being, I'm disappointed that you tried to be like me, you know, taking that idea and flipping it around. Is that, you think that's him believing a different reality or do you think it's Fisher believing, uh, maybe looking at something, a situation in just a different way um, instead of maybe just believing in a different reality? That's the thing that troubles me a little bit is that, 
it is also Fisher's perception, but it's also uh, these external forces trying to craft a different perception from within to achieve their own goals. So in a way, it's not terribly noble what they're doing. It seems like they're trying to stop a monopoly from occurring that would dominate the world's energy. So it seems kind of good because we don't want a monopoly. Um, but at the same time, they are deeply affecting his life as well. So I, okay, so here's what I would say. I would say that this is ultimately Fisher believing what he's always wanted to believe. Every child wants their parent to be proud of them and to love them. And that absence has turned him into a very cold person. But there at the end, it's a very powerful moment. But nevertheless, I don't think that uh, he's looking at his dad and life necessarily in a different way. I think you could make the case that he is um, he's loving his dad, uh, maybe a, appreciating a memory, a time when him and his dad were very loving towards each other until after um, his mom's death and his dad lost his wife and then they grew very cold towards each other. So I think it could be a reevaluation of the love for his dad. You could look at it in a positive aspect in that way. But I would say so far in the negative aspect, it is him um, believing a tr uh, something false that his dad ultimately didn't uh, wasn't proud of him, but it does restir those old feelings that, yeah, my dad once upon a time did love me. Once again, Nolan is a master at making us think about this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I think that's kind of my point too, is that this is kind of the same, the dark Knight too, where the good characters have to do something kind of immoral in order to stop mm -hmm. the evil forces. And this is kind of in the same vein where our main character has to change somebody's view of some situation um, in order to stop his business from being the monopoly. It might not be the most noble way of going about it, but he does do it out of somewhat maybe necessity, but also at the same time for himself so we can get back with his family again. Mm. It's, it's kind of hard to say you know, if it's a good or a bad thing that he did this, although I think the Dark Knight is playing more with that idea of if it's, is it good or bad that they did this. But this does, I would say, play with that idea still. And I think that's kind of what no one is getting going more towards is that gray area of, you know, are these characters as noble as maybe we would like them to be? And I think that's where this makes me, his movie so interesting is that gray area, you know, there isn't really hard to say what's right and not right in the situation. It's hard to say, you know, who's correct and who's not correct or whatever. It's these characters being put in this situation. They have to find, they have to get out of it somehow. That's just how life is. I think that's what makes this movie as interesting. Or even his past few movies as interesting is that maybe their characters aren't as good or as bad or as we think that they may be or as they initially come off as. But that also makes us examine our own life and yeah. the things we do, because I think oftentimes most people tell what we call white lies more often than we'd like to admit. And it's always with good intentions. It's always because you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or you want to uh, not lower your esteem in the other person's eyes. And I think in some ways, no one kind of seizes on that idea of this white lie 
because you are not telling the truth, you are changing that person's perception of the truth in order to make them feel better and honestly to make yourself feel better as well. And he just kind of like expands that into like this crazy dream, you know, yeah. and what yeah. if you were able to plant that inception in someone's mind? And in a way, I think that's kind of what a white lie is, is kind of like inception where you tell somebody a shade or a version of the truth in order to change something about them and about yourself. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I think he does a great job of kind of making us examine ourselves as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, of, of course, we've discussed this in great detail. So, I mean, I would say that that in and of itself is very admirable to see in a movie these days. This is one of his films. I would probably say from my recollection, this and the Dark Knight are his biggest discussion ones. Oh, yeah, absolutely. These two, I... There's a reason why they're as high on the IMDb Top 250, because there's so much to them. There's so much thought put into these movies that makes them so interesting and, to, and so interesting just to discuss some of the ideas and concepts that are brought up in them. I think that's why they are as impactful and are as important today, uh, because they cause so much discussion and have so much meat to them. Well, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Inception? So Inception, man, it's been a couple years since I've seen this. Um, I know I definitely, last time I watched it would have probably been college. Um, but that all said, uh, it was very nice to return to this movie because I forgot how much I actually loved it. And it's kind of hard for me to say which one I like more. I don't know if I like The Dark Knight more or if I like this one more. I think I might go Dark Knight, but that's mostly just because of the Joker. Um, so yeah. This one and Dark Knight are packed full of ideas and packed full of things to discuss. But for Inception uh, alone, I think it's definitely the more original out of the two because it's not based off of really anything. It's based off of Nolan's ideas or Jonathan Nolan's ideas or whoever's ideas. It's not really based off of a pre-existing uh, property. And I think that's what makes it so interesting too is it now has a playground to make up its own stuff, which it absolutely does because it's all about dreams which means that no one can do anything he wants to. So yeah, I absolutely loved Inception and I would definitely would love to return to it to discover more about it because that's one thing I've always known, I always figured as even though I've seen it probably a dozen times, I feel like I always find something else that I didn't notice before in it. So yeah, I absolutely love Inception. I think it does have some clunky exposition, um, but and some characters that are more of walking robots like we have seen before in Christopher Nolan's movies, which is unfortunate to say, but it's still extremely enjoyable. So I'm going to say it's a 10 out of 10 for me. I absolutely love Inception. Um, I already, actually, I just bought it off my cousin, the Blu-ray. I had it on DVD, but I, I sold it and just never bought it on Blu-ray. So that, yeah, that's it. 10 out of 10, high recommend for me. Inception is a modern masterpiece. When a creator is allowed to unleash his unbridled potential through the pen and through modern visual effects, we're presented with a film never before seen, except maybe only in our dreams. So far, this is Christopher Nolan's best film. It achieves incredible emotional depths and intricate thought-provoking situations we may never see again cinematically in our lifetime. Inception receives 10 stars out of 10 with my highest recommendation. So do you consider this better than Dark Knight then? 
Absolutely. Or is there room for discussion as to which one's better? (laughs) I gave The Dark Knight a 9 out of 10. And so this one's a 10 out of 10. So I see it as slightly better for me personally. This is personally so far, I, I don't know. We haven't reviewed the next ones yet. I haven't put my SSG goggles on for those. But so far, this is my favorite Nolan film. Although I do love The Dark Knight. I think this one is probably a little more enjoyable to watch because of just the incredible creative exploration and intricate plot. The Dark Knight is an incredible spiral down into anarchy and socialism and madness. And it's just all over the place. It's incredible, but they're, they're very, very different, but yeah, um, both are utterly brilliant, but I uh, inception's my favorite, but are you of the different mind on that? I see. I don't know. The more I think about it, the more the more divisive I get because <laughs> I can say, okay, well, Inception's the more original movie, but at the same time, I think in terms of what it has to talk about, I think The Dark Knight is the more interesting movie to discuss because of its more, I guess, more political view um, and its view on the social aspect of an idea versus an internal aspect of an idea with, mm-hmm. with inception. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, it's really hard to say. I can't, it's hard for me to really think, or it's hard for me to make a decision as to which one I think is better than the other one. I think that they both are very similar in a lot of ways, but in terms of which one I would like more, I don't know. It's very, very hard for me to choose which one. Even though I give The Dark Knight a nine and this one a 10, I would say that if I were to pick one and not the other, it would be a very tough decision to make. So after watching Inception, Alan, what other movie would you recommend to our listeners? It's very hard to recommend a movie that's somewhat like Inception because Inception's, like we have talked about, kind of original. Yes. Um, however, uh, dream a movie about dreams is not necessarily the most original thing yet because I do know that there is an anime called Paprika by Satoshi Kon. Um, who also did a very famous movie called uh, Perfect Blue. And then a few years after that, Millennium Actress. So if you haven't seen that, it's an anime. Uh, If you haven't seen it, I would say absolutely go watch it. I think it's actually a really good companion piece to uh, Inception, although it does have more Japanese roots. So that's the movie that I think I would definitely recommend the most. If you want more like this, go watch Paprika. And there are some uh, significant Japanese roots in this film as well. Um, they did draw a lot of Japanese architecture um, yeah. when designing some of these scenes. They sent the special features. Um, another interesting connection, because you brought up Perfect Blue, is that Darren Aronofsky has the rights to Perfect Blue. That's right. And he made Black Swan, which competed with Inception at the Oscars. So it's all tied together. Inception is real. And I do remember <laughs> that... Uh, Darren Aronofsky asked Satoshi Kon at the time because there's a shot in both of the movies where the main character is like uh, has her face down in a bathtub and she screams into the water. It's in both movies. He asked Satoshi Kon, can I use that? And he said, yes. And so that's why Black Swan has copied. It's just a scene from Perfect Blue. For a fun mm-hmm. fact. They also ripped that off in The Turning, which I just watched with Mackenzie Davis. Oh, really? Yep. Same shot. Mm. That movie's not as good as either of those other two movies you just mentioned. (laughs) But anyways, so my recommendations, I would absolutely recommend that you see Dark City. Alex Porius says Dark City. Uh, Please watch the director's cut first. 
because the theatrical cut, I know the theatrical cut is streaming on some, uh, it might be streaming free on some big platforms right now. I think on Vudu. The theatrical cut kind of ruins that story. Um, Dark City is very similar to Inception. Is it is does feel very dreamlike within its state and within its characters and trying to recognize what is real and what is identity. It plays with memories and things like that as well. It's a great film. And the other movie I would recommend you watch is Hugo. Because Hugo might not seem like the likely companion piece to Inception, but Hugo is all about the wonder and birth of imagination onto the cinematic screen. And if we don't have like a trip to the moon, which is um, George Milies, who is one of the characters in Hugo, who kind of invented like storytelling and basically brought his dreams to life onto the screen. I think we can see that, uh, you know, a hundred years later here with Inception, how that has still impacted filmmakers as well. So definitely go watch uh, Hugo by Martin Scorsese. It's a fantastic film that uh, was also at the Oscars around this time as well. It's interesting. Well, we are not coming back to Nolan for a little bit. Yes, just for a couple weeks. Just for a couple weeks, Nolan took a two-year hiatus between Inception and The Dark Knight Rises, and it, let this be known, Nolan took four years between The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. That's right, yes. It is a long wait. So we're going to take... About four weeks or so. Yep. We're going to do something really different. We're going to give you a little different flavor here, listeners. Different side of cinema. Next week, we are going to be reviewing Jinro, The Wolf Brigade. That's right. The <laughs> old anime from 1988, followed by the live-action remake on Netflix. Yes, followed by the live-action remake. And it is nice because Jinro is on Prime Video for you subscribers, but it's also free on Tubi TV right now. That's right. That's right. And I have seen Jinro. I watched it also in college. It's been a while oh. since I've seen it. So I'm kind of excited to come back and see what my thoughts are now being a few years away from it. Okay. I, I've forgotten you had seen this movie. I thought we were both fresh on it. I'm fresh for the live action remake, but the anime I have seen before, yeah. And it is weird because the Netflix one came out to very little fanfare. The Netflix one is in Japanese. I don't know if they have a English dub of it or not. Clearly it's subtitled. But I don't know. It's they thought it was good enough to remake uh, I guess. a couple of decades later. I'm yeah, I'm right. pretty excited to see those uh as well. And we're still gonna kind of stick with anime as well because after that we have been talking about this movie on silver screen guide we've brought it up in many conversations but we've never actually seen it <laughs> right i've we, seen pieces <laughs> but i haven't seen it all the way through i've seen about three seconds of footage and still images <laughs> it will be the oldest movie we have ever reviewed actually 1927 mm. yeah yeah king kong was about five years older or, or excuse me younger i should say so yep. yeah the oldest movie we've ever reviewed fritz lang's metropolis right and as we mentioned in the king kong review it was a very one of the earliest talkies and so yeah metropolis will be completely silent no dialogue no dialogue and if i'm right it's like over two hours 
It depends on what cut you have. Okay. <laughs> it, there are like five different cuts. There's an hour and a half cut. There's an hour and like 50 minute cut. There's a two hour cut, like a two and a half hour cut. There's all kinds of stuff because they kept finding footage from this movie. Every few years, they'd find more footage and slap it in. Yeah. So they haven't gotten it all complete yet, but they have most of it, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's probably going to be as complete as it ever will. Yeah. Be, I mean, of course, I think you're right. There's like a little, some a little bit of footage still missing, but thankfully, we do have mostly all of Fritz Lang's vision right. uh, with it as well. Um, that would be kind of sad if we didn't. But yeah. we'll get into more detail when we review that. But I am super excited for that review. I am too. I'm excited to actually just watch it all the way through because I never really, I guess, had a good reason to do that yet. But yeah. And also, we will be reviewing the week after that, Rintaro's Metropolis, which is an anime that came out in 2001. I just picked up the glorious steelbook. Oh, it's I'm very so nice. jealous. It's been <laughs> on my Amazon wish list forever. But because I have a rule that I don't buy movies I haven't seen, I haven't bought it yet. I have that rule too, but I made an exception for, <laughs> for this one. <laughs> Um, I have seen it. I watched it once and my mind was completely blown. That's a little bit of a teaser for what's to come in the next few weeks so here. Excited. But oh, I am so excited to review Rintaro's Metropolis because from what I understand, it does draw a lot of inspiration from uh, the Fritz Lang Metropolis, but they're made so far apart and it's still very different. And of course, they bring some Japanese influence. Right. Um Roger Ebert, just to give you a little preview, gave it a four out of four. And he said, like, if you've never watched an anime movie before, then um, this is the one to watch. This is the one that shows you how great anime can be. Yeah, I'm very excited to watch it. I'm so excited. I've been wanting to see it for years and haven't gotten the chance to. It's not the first anime we reviewed. Uh, we reviewed Ghost in the Shell and all of the Ghost in the Shell films and Akira. And your name. We also reviewed your name. Oh, that's right. That's a good point. I forgot about that. So, yeah, we've got plenty of anime to review. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to wait till next week to see uh, what we think of Jinro, then there's plenty of anime. I'll drop a link in the description below to uh, all of our anime reviews as well. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. Yeah, it was a great discussion. And we don't want the discussion to end here, listeners. So the question after the show is... How do you feel about the top? Not seeing the top fall, seeing it wobble. I mean, I say it wobbles, but maybe some people think uh, there's room for uh, that top to keep going. Mm -hmm. So that, I think that would probably cause the most discussion as well. How do you interpret the final shot, the top going? But I'm curious to see what you think, listeners. So that's the question after the show. Make sure to comment below so we can have a great discussion about that. And we will see you next week with Jinro the Wolf Brigade. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. 
Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. This really shows, as if it hadn't before, this really shows not only how good of a storyteller the Nolan brothers are, but also how good of editors they their movie or how good of how good edited how do I say this? <laughs> how well it also shows how well edited their movies are. Because again,